Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Model Advisor Planning People podcast. I'm Ian Horn, and today I'm chatting with Michael Oanesian, CEO of next generation investment platform Premium. Uh, Michael, thank you for joining us in the UK. Uh, hope you're enjoying your time here. Um, how have you found it? I mean, I know you spend a lot of time in London, but how, how's life for you kind of jumping between London and Australia? Well, hi, Ian, and, and uh, thanks for inviting me along today. Uh, I love being in London at the moment, obviously, with the fires down, down under. Well, yeah. Um, but we, look, we spend about half our time here, so London's kind of home to us as well. Okay, great stuff. And we're also joined by CityWire's very own magazine editor, uh, Will Robbins, uh, who uh, looks after our specials. Well, is it just editor now, your job title? Yeah, I'm still still the editor. You just, yeah, sorry, yes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I've, uh, I'm focusing on delivering our, our special editions each each month, which take up most of my time. So they said the, the essence of leadership is delegation. Ian, so I have, <laughs> have other people to do uh, some of the weekly weekly jobs. So. I think I'm happy to take lessons from that. Uh, more than happy. Anyway, Michael, we've, we've got you in over from Australia. I know you spend a lot of time here, but still, I'm keen we don't uh, don't waste your time and ask you some good questions about platforms. So let's start with uh, vertical integration. Uh, we're seeing a fair amount of it in financial advice. Uh, and the argument for it is reasonable, you know, efficiency, lower costs, potentially, so on. Now, I understand that you have some, some reservations about this uh, around regulation and conflicts of interest. So can you please explain that for our listeners? No, thank you. It's a very good question to start with. Very controversial. It's probably fairer to say that I'm not so much that I'm concerned about it, probably fairer to say that I'm confused about it. Okay. And the reason is that we operate both in Australia and UK, so we're familiar with both and we understand the regulations in both. And if you go back to the RDR days, what happened in the UK is that the vertical model kind of fell apart and people went independent. In Australia, the opposite happened. The big end of town stuck with the vertical model. And now what we're seeing five or six years later is a complete reversal of that trend where... Here, there seems to be a mad frenzy for product providers to buy up distribution. And in Australia, it's going the other way. All the big banks are getting out of it. In fact, if you take the big six in Australia, the major four mm -hmm. banks plus AMP and IWF, they lost about 30% of their advisors last calendar year in mm -hmm. one year. So what you're seeing there, which started as a trickle, this movement towards independence, has become a flood. Really amplified by the Hain Royal Commission into the banks, where... It was, the, it was the poor conduct in the wealth area in particular where the banks really got smashed. And so what's happening in Australia is we're seeing this unwinding of the vertical model and it's got to the point where, and we've seen this in the last 12 months, where whether institutions are making business decisions about the vertical model or not, that's mm -hmm. unwinding. But more importantly, advisors themselves are voting with their feet to the point now where, and, and this is true for us on our platform down there, Advisors who are using, who are independent, they're not, they're not controlled by a, a product mm. provider, where they've got a white label version of the platform, they don't even want to have a white label version of the platform with their advisor firm name. In, in, mm. in other words, they are, they've become so enamoured with the idea of appearing to be independent as well as actually being independent that you know, even white labels now are really starting to unwind. So I, I, sort of, I, I sort of look at Australia and the zeitgeist has changed. I can't... I could be wrong, but it's hard to imagine it now going back the other way. So, so when I'm here in, in London, mm -hmm. um, where I spend a lot of my time, I, I, I find it a curious, complete opposite dichotomy. Yeah, well, I, I find this interesting, and Will, you might have some th thoughts on this as well, but we had a similar thing for different reasons around 2012 with RDR coming in. And I think a lot of advisors became even more certain that they needed to be independent, and yet we're almost 
10 years on from that. And we are seeing discussions around vertical integration. So I just wonder if the markets are in different positions. You know, Will, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, it's strange. I mean, you know, it's funny how they've kind of flipped. Yeah, there are kind of different sort of rhythms to what's going on. I mean, with the RDR, you, uh, yeah, I mean, it's sort of defi defined independence in this different way. But I mean, even when that was coming in, so 2013, platforms i mean people platforms were, were prevalent i suppose but i mean when i joined nma in 2010 it was it was still a sort of it marked it marked you out to be using a platform in to some some respect um and so there's been a sort of different evolution there i guess what there's a couple of things i'd observe about the uk the vertical integration thing you know it's, it's been something for the larger firms of what you know wanted to do to make their you know, to pursue this idea of creating big advice businesses uh, and also a big enough advice business that can support a share. <laughs> so uh, St. James's Place is sort of the, by far the biggest uh, advice business um, and uh, it's completely vertically integrated and uh, its shares, shares do rather well, thank you. Uh, Quilter is probably its largest rival, used to be called Old Mutual, so was sort of spun off from, from the old, old, old Mutual. Um, and one of the factors there was definitely was the idea that the advice business could stand on its own two feet uh, as a listed business. Uh, and, of course, having the platform as well was a big part of that. And hence, sort of all the sort of column inches written about how much money they spent trying to re-platform and so on and so forth. It's really interesting. So... Some of that inverted integration plays about being able to support the idea of a big advice business that's a listed advice business and you know and, and it's capturing a lot of margin and it's really interesting. I think then whether that survives, you know, I mean, we see we see time and again that model gets tested, you know, from all sorts of reasons, from a client compliance point of view, from a, from a margin point of view in terms of how much is financial planning really bringing in. Uh, yeah, and, yeah well, and so, actually, it's a big so question. Sorry to cut yeah, you off yeah, there, Will, but I think actually, Michael, I'd be keen to get your thoughts on, you know, on vertical integration. Can it work? You know, do you think it can work? And if it can work, how? Yeah, it depends on how you define success of the vertical model. Mm -hmm. um, clearly, for those that are doing that integration, it's probably a positive thing, generally. Um, I think the question, though, is how do you deliver what I think is the ultimate game, I think, in this whole industry? And... And that is what I call the professionalising of this industry. And if you just think about any other kind of professional service that you might get from your lawyer, your doctor, your accountant, your architect, your chiropractor, your physiotherapist, your personal trainer, you know, you, you have no problem understanding that when you look at that person in the eye, they've got your interests at heart. And so the real challenge is, and remember, financial advice as a professional industry is relatively new, unlike medicine and law and, and accounting, how do we get to the point where people have a similar sense of great confidence and trust in their advisor? And if we can do that within the vertical model, great. I think that's the real challenge. What's interesting, though, is that, and, and coming to your point, Will, about um, this vertical integration, it's also the advice firms now that are trying to vertically integrate. They're getting their platform permissions, they're getting their DFM permissions as well. And so... To me, what we're looking for here is that the regulators are very much about conduct and taking care of clients and, and consumer protections, which is absolutely what regulators should be doing. But I think the real challenge, I think, is how do independent advice firms that choose not to vertically integrate, how do they get profitable? 
And I think that's actually uh, an area that, that I find really interesting. And, I, and I, I actually think there is reason to believe that we can make that so mm -hmm. with, with technology. Yeah, and, and to follow up, you mentioned technology, and, and that's an interesting one because obviously platforms are you know, increasingly doing more and more to come up with new innovations, new things they can do for advisors and their clients. Um, and with all that going on and all that tech that you can plug in and so on, that's great, surely. But do you not also think there's a case for greater integration and maybe integration being a focus rather than creating new things? Yeah, it's a bit different. If you, if you compare Australia and the UK, certainly this idea of an ecosystem of best-in-class bits of software <clears throat> is more relevant here because I think that's just the way the industry's evolved. I, I think that integrating across companies and across software systems, even with APIs and so on, I think it's fundamentally different, different, difficult because even if you can make it work, it's making it work sustainably because you know, my bit of software and your bit of software are changing all the time. So things that were working before in terms of the way they're syncing won't always work. So I think it is quite a challenge. I, and I, it might be the solution, but I suspect it won't be, actually. I, I think what we're going to see is more integrated systems that can do more things on a standalone basis and are controlled by one operator, one mm -hmm. actor. Yeah. Is, uh, I might be anticipating a question here of yours, Ian, but I think, is that what, uh, for, for premium, is that what, uh, that integration, is that part of what you think is gonna help advice firms uh, be, be more profitable because um, it was I think you intimated that you know what you would like to offer is you know beyond what sort of the basic functions of the platform yep. already does that you would that, that you'd help firms with that sort of efficiency and productivity I mean what if you think about a holy grail because people talk about back office systems in Australia we call them financial advice software systems <laughs> but whatever you want to call them um, the holy grail has always been to integrate a platform and a back office system Right, because advisors right. typically need both. They need one where they can do their advice and understand their clients, another where they invest the money. We bought a, a software system here several years ago called Plum. It's been around a long time. And, and we bought that so that we could activate our Wealthcraft platform, which is a CRM financial planning system. And it is still our goal to one day integrate our platform and our financial advice software system. And, and for us, we, we call it a holy grail. It's actually our ultimate vision of where we want to be and we, and we think we'll get there within a few years. Because I think syncing between systems, you know, one back office system and 20 platforms is really, really hard to do. But, you know, if I can at least get one system to talk to another system and actually have a common um, source of truth, if you like, hmm. we think that that's a really viable, exciting proposition. Now, we may never get there. We, it might be too hard to do, but that's something we're working on right now. Right. Yeah, and, and to follow up, um, I was having some conversations about what you guys do with with our reporters, with Will's team. I borrowed some of Will's team when he wasn't looking. I was speaking to uh, <laughs> to Jack Gilbert, one of our senior reporters, and he kind of pointed out to me that you know very few platforms have really broken into the market or challenged the the bigger players in recent years. Um, and he kind of was, you know, we were discussing this. And we were kind of wondering why, you know, and what your thoughts on that would be. You know, are you looking to challenge the biggest names on the platform scene? Um, and you know, is there anything you'd like to see the FCA do? to help uh, encourage more competition? Well, I'll answer that question easily because there's about 30 platforms, so I don't, I don't think we have a competition problem. Same in Australia, mm -hmm. by the way, it's about 30 platforms. Now, I think that for us, so let's just take the platform market. In Australia, it started in the early 90s and it was about 10 years later here in the UK. And because Australia had started with wraps back then, not surprising, a lot of the technology we have here in the UK is from Australia, right. wrap technology. And, and that wrap plan platform technology hasn't really evolved that much over time. I mean, effectively, wraps are 
if you like, more sophisticated ways of doing your first generation of technology, which were master trusts, right? But they're effectively their investment administration services, you know, where, where the advisors pretty much do all the work. Premium is interesting in the sense that we're not an early 1990s wrapped technology, right? So we don't have the legacy architecture, or scar tissue as I call it, that someone who's been around for 20 or 30 years has as a platform operator. But on the other hand, we're not a startup either. And, you know, that we, you know, and, and in both countries, by the way, in Australia and here, we're seeing a lot of new fintech startups that are trying to disrupt the platform market. And the challenge they have is that, well, on the one hand, they don't have any legacy. And there's no scar tissue if you start from scratch as, as a software platform. But equally, it takes time and money and patience to build out all the functionality that advisors now reasonably expect. And that's quite a lot of functionality. You think about the reporting and the way you process fees and the way you um, can screen for assets and so on. And, and so, so I think of premium as sort of being in the Goldilocks zone. Like we've been, we haven't been around since the 1990s, so it's not that old. But equally, we have been around long enough that we've built most of the functionality that a platform would expect. We do have some legacy, but it's not so much that it actually interferes with the way we innovate the platform. So, so actually, I think, and, and to give an example of, of that pedigree, if I could, up until the time when Aegon bought co-funds, for 10 years, we were the CGT engine inside co-funds. So what we do, we do quite well and have been doing it for a long time. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the word disruptor. I know it's a bit of a buzzword. People throw it around. Um, but do you think that the kind of platform market is somehow prone to a disruptor or do you think you could be that disruptor? Well, I think the UK platform market is ripe for disruption. And I, I'll, I'll say that for a couple of reasons. One, as I said, the technology is not that different to what we have in Australia. So wraps here and wraps there, not surprisingly, are very similar because they kind of came from there and they're here now. Um, but if you think about what RAP platforms have done for the last 30 years now, 25, 30 years, they haven't really changed that much. They're still pretty much doing the same sorts of things, offering a wide choice of things that you can buy as an advisor, lots of reporting, the ability to process advice fees and so on. So all of that has been around for a long time. Now, sure, platforms are adding more and more of this stuff, but for me, it's, it's, I'll, I'll, I'll give this an analogy. I love using Microsoft Excel. I use it pretty much every day. Um, and they keep adding more and more functionality. And I, I probably only use about 5% of it. If I tried to use 10 or 20% of it, my graphs would look nicer and my tables would be prettier, but I don't think it'd be more efficient. So, you know, whilst these things are useful to some advisors, I'm not sure it's actually changing the dial dramatically in terms of their productivity, which when I go back to the earlier point I made, <clears throat> I think is the biggest challenge for the industry. If advisors can be efficient and do all the compliance and actually give their clients real you know, investment management and advice support on an ongoing basis and still make money, I think that's the challenge. That's why, and, and I, I'm just going to move on to now, what, what, what happened in the United States and what's sort of happening here in the UK. This idea of managed accounts is the new thing. It's, it's the new thing that is now an old thing in the United States because in the United States they moved from wraps to managed accounts, what, what they call separately managed accounts, about 20 years ago. And we've had this trend of that happening in Australia as well. Now, if you imagine the RAP platforms here that are offering model portfolio functionality, you would call that managed account. But it's, it's kind of done better by some platforms versus others because it's not a natural fit to the architecture of a RAP platform. So, so we see the future of the evolution of managed accounts and advisors changing their business models to outsource investment management. We see that as the future in terms of driving huge changes in efficiency. And we've, we've done some research actually 
from our Australian database. And, and the, the results are really compelling in terms of the benefits that advisors get by changing their business model from what they've always been doing. Okay. That's an interesting one. Yeah. Will, do you have any thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah. yeah I'd like to hear, to hear a bit more about managed accounts, really, and also sort of how that changes the business model. Because I think, um, well, I mean, it might be the other, I mean, just coming from the other side, you know, talking about uh, productivity, sort of profitability, you know, some of the, eventually you get to questions of how do people pay for advice? How do you make money from advice? Uh, the moment it's a lot of it's from percentage charging, which suits advisors and platforms. And uh, only one platform had a model that was flat fee. Uh, and so, and, and often, <laughs> and also often advisors when challenged to say whether they change their model would say, well, when the platform takes a percentage, uh, you know, and, and so, so there's a little bit of a circularity there, but it's very much sort of suited both parties. So I sort of will have that in mind when also thinking, uh, I mean, I want to hear more about managed accounts. I know that they're not connected, but there's some sort of read through about how advice firms might change what they offer and the way that they're paid for it. The, the issue is not so much how or how much they get paid or how much platform is charged. I think that's that's not the main issue. The issue is a profit productivity of advisors. I, I know right. one advisor in Australia who works till 11 p.m. every night, and he's doing the classic thing. You know, he's picking funds on a rap platform. Right? Yeah. All the research and monitoring and execution and rebalancing. And if you sort of look at what clients value, they don't value all that work, that they value client relationship and a plan and some sort of strategic overview. So, so what we're seeing with managed accounts, though, is that <clears throat> we get better outcomes for clients. And, and in Australia, we call them SMA, separately managed accounts. Now, Standard Life are talking about that here, which is great, because you know, for the last 10 years, we've been the only firm here, I think, that talks about SMA. <clears throat> but if you think about the impact. Now we've done some research um, in Australia and, and here's some really interesting stats. If you, if you take the average um, advice firm and just look at the profitability of the principles in that firm, because it takes time to get the impact, but if, you, if, if, if the firm's been using managed accounts for at least three years, the profitability of each principle goes up by over about 40% on average. Okay. But even more compelling, when the firm has about more than 75% of its client money in managed accounts as opposed to wrap, that profitability number is more like over 80% uplift. So what we're seeing is some, not surprising, because we've never really understood the impact on advisors before, so this is some research that was undertaken by a third party. Mm. And what we're actually seeing is the average advisor has more clients, um, more funds under administration, and a hell of a lot less admin and compliance. And, that's, and it's that latter point yeah. that is driving the efficiency and, and profitability of advice business, which goes back to the earlier question about why are people vertically integrating is because they can't make enough money just being advisors. Yeah. And so I, I and, and with digital capabilities, I mean, we, we at Premium and I'm sure others, you know, we're doing digital acceptance now. We have an artificial robot, artificial intelligence that gives some insights into engagement. So I think technology is gonna help that. But there has to be some fundamental retooling about business processes with advice firms if they really want to take the next step forward in terms of their productivity and, and, and profitability. Interesting. Yeah, very interesting. I, mean, I would actually be glad to discuss more, but we're kind of limited on time. Um, I'm going to have to move on to questions about uh, replatforming now. And we've seen some issues with that in recent years. Uh, and my question, Michael, is, is why do you think this is? And do you think replatforming is going to become better and more efficient in the, in the you know, foreseeable future? So this is a really good philosophical question because 
and I'm going to start off by talking about what, what is a platform. A platform is effectively software with some sub -custody, you know, safe custody of assets and, and trading effectively. And now safe custody and trading have been around for centuries, I think. <laughs> um, so actually the efficiency, and they're not really getting a lot more efficient. So the efficiency gains are in what the software can do for advisors effectively and investors. So, so when you don't control your own technology, you've got to sort of say, well, what, what control have you really got? You know, can you, can you make fundamental big changes in your platform without having operational risk? And I think the answer is, the evidence so far is that that's problematic, um, decidedly so. But also, if you've done a major replatforming exercise and you've gone through the pain, are you likely to want to do it again? And so mm -hmm. the question then is, do these platforms then get stuck? And I don't know the answer to that. All I can say is I don't envy um, firms that don't control their own technology because I think it is difficult. I think it's fundamentally difficult. This dichotomy between, on the one hand, not wanting to have disruption, and yet mm -hmm. on the other hand, being able to continue to, to innovate to drive efficiencies for advisors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a challenge, isn't it, for sure. Um, Another, another question to ask you here is, um, do you think people, obviously there's loads of different platforms, as you said, it's about 30 in the market, all doing something slightly different. Do you actually think the UK advice market fully understands premium and what you do? Uh, I think the answer is probably not. I mean, I think if you sort of look at the surveys of who actually really understands what we do, it's a single digit number okay. <laughs> of the advisor community. But I mean, one of the good things about Premium, though, is that because we're very good at running model portfolios, and we think we're the best at it, in fact, we just recently won the best discretionary platform at the Schroeder's Awards, um, our biggest supporters actually are the DFMs, because if you're a DFM and you want to run model portfolios for people in a discretionary way, it just works better on the Premium platform because it's got this dynamic rebalancing capability, which basically means that all the monitoring is sort of unnecessary. You don't have to worry about you know, risk management of portfolios. You don't have to worry about rebalancing. You don't have to worry about drift. And most importantly, the performance of the DFM and the, all the investors in that model is the same, which just doesn't happen on a normal RAP platform. So, no, I, I think that, yeah, I think probably our biggest challenge now is just letting people know what we, what we do and telling our story. Yeah, and another aspect of your service that um, was mentioned to me was the ability to offer digital rather than wet signatures for things. And I, I know that might seem like quite a peripheral issue, but Certainly from my, my hours spent scrolling on Twitter, I can see that it infuriates uh, financial planners to no end. So can you talk me through that, why you think it's good to go digital, you know, and, and do you think that's going to be the norm moving forward? So uh, it's a great question. I'm glad you asked me that question. So when we first launched digital acceptance about 12 months ago, or even longer, two years ago, we, we knew that it would be a more efficient process than having wet signatures. That, that, that's obvious. What we didn't realise was there's this other great benefit that we've identified, haven't been doing this for a few years, and that is simply this, that if you compare a paper application for a platform account versus a digital application, what we found is that with the paper application, the client would only then um, uh, put cash into the client, into the platform account, 60% of the time after one month, right? So if you have all these paper apps after one month, only 60% of them would be funded. But with a digital app, that number was 80%. It's astonishing. Mm. After three months, the paper apps were funded in about 80% of the time and the digital apps 95% of the time. What does that mean? 
Well, it means that the with digital apps, clients are getting invested sooner in the market. That's probably a best a good thing, unless you happen to be unlucky with markets. Um, and advisors are getting a return on that investment sooner. And if you think about that, one of the worst things advisors can do is do all the work of, of giving a client advice, setting up their account, getting everything ready, and the client doesn't send the money. And so that was a surprising benefit, but we think an incredibly powerful one for the profitability and productivity of advice businesses. Hmm. I mean, are there any kind of risks with digital signatures? I only ask because I, I kind of I always think about it, and I might be completely wrong here, and you might might be correcting me, but. With digital signatures, could someone not hack that? Could not someone not copy that or emulate that in the same way they could a wet signature? You know, I'm, I'm smiling as you say that because we, we get asked this question. I, I think there's no doubt in my mind that digital is much safer. I mean, if you think about a wet signature, you don't know who actually signed that thing. You don't know when they signed it. You don't know where they were when they signed it. But with digital, we know answers to all those questions. Huh. All the telemetry is available to us in a digital. And in the way we do it with sort of questions, which, which is kind of what you do on your phone. You think about all the apps that you're digitally accepting. You know, there's all sorts yeah. of checks and balances. So no, I, I have no doubt that digital is safer. In fact, I'm, I'm terrified by the thought of a paper signature. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's an interesting, uh, yeah, interesting flip on the usual perspective, isn't it? At the same time, I think the advisors we speak to are actually just, to be honest, just annoyed with having to go through the, you know, the process of sending things through the post, which does seem Definitely. a bit dated in this, in this day and age. Uh, okay, I, and again, talking about being in at least the 21st century uh, and moving on from carrier pigeon and fax and so on, um, we're doing a lot around fintech this year. Um, and my question on this is, do you think platform providers in general are doing enough for advisors to integrate all the new great fintech that is going on? Um, and do you think advisors also pay enough respect to technology and actually utilize what's available to them? Well, that's a good question. I, I, I think that Probably the thing that's getting in, in the way of advisors is just inertia. They're so busy. I mean, I run, here is the irony of it. If you think about advisors using a RAP platform picking funds, it, it's taking up so much of their time because they have to do most of the work. I mean, the platform gives you research and like, you can sort things and you can study things, but the advisor's got to do all this work in terms of rebalancing and monitoring and so on. And so the irony of all this is that they're so busy using tech that's been around for a while, um, to put it kindly, that they haven't got the time to stand back and say, I want to fundamentally change my business. So it's the inertia and the fact that they're working so hard that I think is getting in the way of them really exploring how they might find new ways of changing their business models. And it's not an easy decision to make. You've got to think about who the right technology partners are. You've got to be, you've got to be careful you don't, you, you don't make the wrong decision because people can oversell things. Uh, and then you've got to implement it. And then implementing you know, for a business that's got an established client base is not an easy thing for advisors to do. So look, I don't... I don't envy them, I think. It's quite a challenge. But you have to be quite strategic, I think, in your choice of technology partners because I think going down the wrong path can be a lot of work for very little gain. And, and so I think that... I, I, and I think particularly in the UK market, I think thinking about platform partners and so on is becoming more and more a strategic choice. And I think the re-platforming issues, I think, are one of the things that bears that out. I suppose one observation is, uh, you know... The, the the state of the UK advice profession at the moment, you know, still lots of small businesses. You know, we talked about biz big businesses at the beginning, um, and it's you know, it's just this this uh, this question is fascinating for all sorts of reasons. But um, 
you know, yeah, small, small, all these small businesses, all these small businesses choosing technology partners, you know, and you as a technology firm dealing with firms one by one, and each firm we're using potentially several platforms. Um, it's it's uh, it was slow going. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Um, and I, I was, it was just you know I've been thinking about this in other contexts, like for example, you know reg when things go wrong, regulation, all the problems, you know, some issues we're having with, with, with DB Trans at the moment, of just how uh, it, you know looking even like a regulator to see what's going on at a firm it has to take one firm one by one and, and know through. There's no look through, you know, from from the regulator's point of view. And I'm not saying you're here to enable the regulator to snoop on advice firms or anything. Yeah. But it's sort of part of a general issue that of, of that there are many, many, albeit absolutely fantastic businesses, but it's all sort of one at a time. And it's sort of, when you're talking about a profession adopting technology, it's about all those businesses take, you know, and, and which I guess is is brilliant if you're in the market, you know, all, but there's one, all these businesses making those decisions one by one. It's, it's, uh, a, really doing it different it's a really good point. In fact, if you think about any other, say, professional service, yeah. you imagine any one of them would have, let's say they're an accounting practice and they need to use some accounting software. Can you imagine the average accounting practice using six or seven or eight or nine different versions of accounting software? Yeah. They just wouldn't do it. It's a unique thing about this industry. So I think this industry actually, actually has got to the situation now where it's kind of, it's a real struggle. Because if you take most advice firms over time, they're probably using at least half a dozen platforms. Some of them, I know some advice firms have got money with every platform. And you know. not to mention maybe there's some DFMs there. Multiple DFMs, uh, some which have custody, some like which that. don't. Yeah. yeah, exactly. No, I think it, I think it is quite rightly, and, and I think this is everywhere. So, so when I talk about the, the, the need to get productive and, and efficient, advice firms have to actually stand back and have a clear strategy. And part of that is actually cleaning up this mess because nobody can use five different bits of software. It's impossible, let alone seven or eight or nine or ten. Um, so, I, so I think this whole thing about this industry moving forward and becoming more productive is a huge challenge and advice firms have to be strategic about it. Do you think we'll see, we talked about vertical integrated firms, do you think, do you think we have to get to the point where, you know, that, that, there's such a byword for like big business, bad old big business, you know, but actually we get to the point where that, that is the reality for smaller firms, what we'd require, you know, a medium sized firm now, uh, that putting aside the regulatory hoo-ha about whether that makes you restricted or independent, that whether that would just be, uh, whether it's you or someone else, you know, you, you providing that, that would just be a much more normal way for advice Well, it's interesting because be. you can argue that larger groups that are vertically integrated are more professional and they can execute more efficient processes and so on. So I think that that's probably one of the benefits that they would argue. Um, but there's no reason why a, a reasonable size advice firm can't also think through this strategically and find a way to make their business effective. And I suppose what, when I say vertically integrated, I think I've, I've just have need to correct myself. I kind of mean a single platform. Because mm. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm an independent business, I mean, the vertical integration kind of means you're providing your own product, which is not, which is not what I mean. But, yeah. but single platform, I suppose, is what I'm, what I'm getting uh, at or having, to, and yeah. Yeah, I don't want to get into the sort of the FCA argument about it. No, no one I, does. I, I, I don't want to go <laughs> Literally there. Literally no one wants to go to that. But, but, but if, I, if I just take it from an industrial logic perspective, yeah, yeah. it makes no sense for advisors to be on multiple platforms. It's not good for the... Right. Uh, you know, yeah. I, don't, I don't think it makes that big a difference for investors. But here is the thing. If it makes advisors more and more inefficient, then they have to charge more. So I, I don't... The industrial logic is... <laughs> No, in no other profession would you expect someone to have, you know, zero and, you know, some other accounting software and two or three. I mean, you just wouldn't expect it. So, yeah. no, I, I think it just makes sense that you 
you get to you, you, you build a process around one or two bits of software and you make that efficient. And you get familiar with it, you know how to make it work. Uh, I think this idea of being all over the place, which is what most advisors still are today. Yeah, is there not more opportunity to work with networks as well? Because there is obviously a lot of passion in the UK market for retaining that independence. You know, at the same time, you know, we're talking about infrastructure and the difficulties of scaling up and doing things en masse. So, you know, is that something that you see? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the idea of a network or what we'd call a deal group in Australia, having sort of an approved list of providers, if you like, whether they're DFMs or platforms or whatever, I think that sort of makes sense. But I think it, th it then becomes at the advisor level, how does that particular advisor get efficient? And if that advisor's got money on five or six different platforms with 10 different DFMs, well, they're probably never going to make a buck. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and, and Michael, um, looking forward to 2020, is it, well, I say looking forward to, we're already in mid to late January, by the time this comes out, it might even be February. But is there anything that you're doing this year that you're particularly looking forward to? There is, and it's something that we did about a year ago in Australia, and we're launching it very shortly here in the UK. It's our, we call it Insights, it's artificial intelligence, and it's really designed about helping advisors with client retention. That's the purpose of this um, this robot, if you like. What, what we've when we first did the UAT, when we did the testing back in Australia a couple of years ago, um, the advisor that we were that we were working with, we predicted that they that this advisor was going to lose three particular clients. He subsequently lost those clients. That advisor, for the last 12 months or so, logs on to our advisor portal, mm -hmm. and he has a look to see if the, the AI robot's got anything to say. Because if overnight the robot's determined that there's another client that he's got that's a bit shaky, it will point it out to that advisor. And look, with, with an accuracy of, a, and, and the robot's not always right, but it's accurate to over 80% of the time. So almost all the time it correctly predicts that an advisor is about to lose a client. Now, I think this is incredibly powerful mm -hmm. because if you think about the cost of client acquisition, losing clients is obviously very painful for advisors. So we think this is a really interesting application yeah. for artificial intelligence. Okay, well, I have one more question. But having said that, Will, if you've got anything else to add, please do. Um, what I want to ask is about advisors selling their business. Now, it gets talked about a lot. And I think maybe it's not as big a chunk of the market as we might think, but I don't have any numbers for you. Um, but have you encountered many firms that have gone to sell their business and found their platform tech or other tech they've got just isn't up to scratch? And how important do you think it is now for firms to have their tech kind of in order before they actually sell up? It depends whether you're a buyer or a seller. So clearly, if, you're, if your book is all over the place and you're inefficient and you're the buyer, well, that's fine. You can buy mm. that book yeah. and you can provide those efficiencies. So I go back to my original point about advice firms have to be strategic about how they're going to get more productive. And so it's completely different answers depending on whether you're buying or selling. Okay. But, but I, I do see an awful lot of advice firms that, that are a bit... Yeah. Well, let's, yeah, let's look at it from a selling perspective, because I, I think most of our listeners that would be thinking about this would be looking at it from the selling perspective. You know, what do you think they need to do in terms of platforming and in terms of other tech that they're using? Well, I, I mean, I think it's just revenue and profit. You know, so if, if I'm a buyer and I go into your business and you, you want to sell to me at a really high multiple, I'm going to look at your business and you're, oh, you're on 12 different platforms, that's great, and you've got money with that DFM and that DFM, and yeah. you've got you know, a long list of 1,000 funds that you're picking <laughs> and rebalancing. I would probably say I don't think you're worth as much because you're just not efficient. So, so I think you're. I think you're right. I think 
if you are looking to sell your book, as it were, if you can sell an efficient book that makes money, that's going to that's gonna be very productive. Okay, Michael, that's all from me. Will, do you have anything to add before I wrap this up? <laughs> um, no, I think that's been, that's been a great conversation. And uh, really, just I think what that idea of productivity, efficiency, as you're saying, you know, uh, I think that's, that's something that we're going to explore uh, a bit more in the future. And I think with this, as I say, advertise the fact that we've got a special takeover <laughs> edition of the magazine coming out in March. Hopefully this podcast comes out slightly before then. Um, but that's sort of what we're going to be exploring. And I think um, actually quite an exciting time for advice firms. Uh, and I think a sort of nice opportunity to move the profession forward in a way that has been a little bit slow since the RDR. So yeah. exciting times. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Guys, Michael, thank you for joining us. Will, thank you for joining as well. That has been our latest Planning People podcast. If you have anything nice to say about it, please contact me at ihorn at citywire.co.uk. Any criticisms, send to will.robbins at <laughs> wrobbins at citywire.co.uk. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks, guys.